As we begin our time in the Word, I want to ask you a question for you to contemplate. You don't need to answer out loud, of course, but think about the following question. What do you think is the most frightening sound you could hear? Think about that for a moment. What is the most frightening sound you could hear? For some of you, the most frightening sound you could possibly hear is the drill at the dentist's office. For others, the most frightening sound you could possibly hear is an airplane taking off with you on board. For those of you who spend time hiking in the mountains, the most frightening sound might be the roar of a grizzly bear nearby. There are hosts of sounds in this world that frighten us. But one of the most frightening sounds that can ever be experienced is complete and absolute Silence. Have you ever had that experience? We don't realize how much noise is part and parcel of our lives until we are faced with total silence. It's an eerie experience. The day is coming when heaven will experience complete and total silence. Now, if you are familiar with the book of Revelation, then you know that heaven is characterized by loud, joyous worship. It isn't quiet in heaven. It's loud. It's boisterous. But the time is coming when heaven will become absolutely, almost deathly silent. We are told about that time in Revelation chapter 8. If you aren't already there, please turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the 8th chapter. And we want to consider verses 1 through 6 in this message. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which, is before the, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. As we come to this eighth chapter of the book of Revelation, we come to the second major section of judgment. You will remember that chapters 6 through 19 of this book are about the judgments that will someday come upon this earth during what we call the seven-year tribulation period. Those judgments unfold in three sections. First, there are the seal judgments. They are called the seal judgments because they will take place every time the Lord Jesus Christ breaks one of the seven seals that are upon the scroll he received from the hand of God the Father back in chapter 5. 
The second series of judgments will be the trumpet judgments. They are called the trumpet judgments because they will take place each time an angel sounds one of the seven trumpets. The seven trumpets are the ones we want to introduce in this particular message. The third series of judgments will be the bowl judgments. They are called the bowl judgments because they will take place every time an angel pours out a bowl full of the wrath of God. After the seven bowl judgments will come the most climactic judgment of all, and that is the literal, personal, bodily second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. And yes, beloved, that is a judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8 refers to that time when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The judgments of the tribulation period will culminate with the most climactic judgment, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. When the one who came the first time as a lamb to be slain and to redeem will come as a lion, fierce to judge and to rule with a rod of iron. We have already looked at six of the seven seal judgments in detail as we covered chapter 6. Seal number one will be the release of the Antichrist onto the world scene and a temporary world peace. Seal number two will be a shattering of that peace as world war breaks out as well as civil anarchy. The result will be massive bloodshed. Seal number three will be economic upheaval and severe famine conditions. Seal number four will be death from wars, the famine, plague, pestilence, and beasts of the earth. As a result, over 1.5 billion people, assuming the population is what it is today, over 1.5 billion people will die when this seal is opened. Seal number five is the promise of vengeance on those who persecute believers during the tribulation period. Seal number six will result in cosmic turmoil as the entire galaxy is violently shaken. The sun becomes black. The moon becomes red. Meteors or asteroids pound the earth. The sky splits apart and every mountain and island will be moved out of its place. When we read about these things in the book of Revelation and from what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24... It is easy for us to assume that all of this will surely get the attention of those dwelling on the earth to bring them to repentance. But that's not what's going to happen. Yes, many of the people of the earth will begin to pray during this time. But many of them will be praying to the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face of God and the wrath of the Lamb. From the best I can tell, the six seal judgments will spread out over several years of the tribulation period. That is, there will be a, a, quite a bit of period of time between each of these seals. They won't be uh, unfolding quickly. They will begin at the beginning, and they will stretch out past the key midpoint of the tribulation on into that sec second three and a half years of the tribulation period. 
The trumpet judgments, which are described here in chapter 8, will take place at some point during the second half of the tribulation. They will take place more rapidly than the seal judgments. That is, they will hit the earth closer together. Then the bowl judgments will be near the end of the tribulation period, and they will unfold in a rapid fire succession to build to the climax of the return of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier in this series, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are sequential. That is, they unfold one after the other. That doesn't mean, however, that they are equally spaced out over the seven-year period, but they do follow one another in chronological sequence. Therefore, chapters 6, 8, 9, and 16, which tell about these three sets of judgments, form the chronological framework of this section of the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. The other chapters in this section tell us about some of the other events of the tribulation, and they fill in the picture for us, although they don't necessarily follow chronological order. They sometimes cover the entire period, as we see in chapter 7, or they spotlight an event within that period, as is the case in chapter 18, or they survey the first half or last half of the period, as we see in chapter 11. So as we come to chapter 8, we will be looking at events that are going to take place during the second half of the tribulation period. The Antichrist has already broken his covenant with Israel at the three and a half year point of the tribulation. 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us about that event. Back up there for just a moment to Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. (coughs) Just prior to 1 and 2 Timothy... It's the book of 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, all that phrase, that long phrase, is summed up in a very popular term today, simply the term rapture. But it's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in our gathering together unto Him. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had come. Let me explain what was going on here. Because the Thessalonians were experiencing persecutions and afflictions, And because they knew from what Paul had taught them, and as you see in the book of Revelation, the end times will be characterized by persecutions and afflictions. So because the Thessalonians were experiencing those things, they began to believe the inaccurate teaching of some who were saying that they had missed the gathering together of believers in the air, and they were in the day of the Lord's wrath, experiencing these these, uh, persecutions and afflictions. No wonder they were shaken in mind and troubled. I would be too if I thought I was going to have to suffer under the day of the Lord's wrath, face His wrath. So Paul once again sets the record straight as he did in 1 Thessalonians. He assures them that they are not in the day of the Lord's wrath. And then he tells them why. Verse 3, he says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless... 
the falling away comes first, and the man of sin or lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. Paul says that there are two things that will take place before the day of the Lord's wrath hits. A great falling away, that's one, and two, the man of sin will be revealed. To what do these two event to what do these two events refer? I personally believe that the first item is a reference to or at least connected with the rapture of the church. Let me explain what I mean. The Greek word that is translated falling away here in verse 3, where Paul says a falling away, is the Greek word apostasia. It comes from a Greek word aphistomai, which literally means to remove. I personally believe that's the way Paul is using the word here. The day of the Lord's wrath will not come until two things happen. The removal, that is the removal of the church, and the revelation of the man of sin. Now I need to tell you that most scholars don't hold that view. They say that what Paul is referring to here, I'm not talking about the timing of the rapture. They, they think that what Paul is referring to here is not the removal of the church, but a great end time apostasy. So let me comment on that. Even if you take this word apostasia to refer to a worldwide religious falling away rather than a removal of something, it still doesn't change things because how is that going to happen unless all true believers are taken out of this world which sets the stage for this great falling away? So the first thing that must happen before the day of the Lord's wrath hits this earth is the great apostasy or the great removal, whichever way you want to take this Greek term that Paul uses here. The second thing that must happen before the day of the Lord's wrath hits this earth is the man of sin must be revealed. The man of lawlessness. Who is this man? This is obviously a reference to the Antichrist who is spoken of by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, by our Lord in Matthew 24, and by John in Revelation chapters 11 and 13. According to Daniel chapter 9, he is going to sign some kind of seven-year agreement, pact, or treaty with the nation of Israel. But halfway through those years, he is going to break his end of the bargain. And he is going to demand worship, as Paul will tell later right here in this very text. The Jewish people as a whole will refuse, and as a result, he will persecute them ruthlessly. That is what Daniel 9.27 says about the Antichrist, and Jesus reaffirmed that in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. So here in verse 3, Paul says, The day of the Lord's wrath will not begin until this man of sin is revealed. How will he be revealed? When he signs the seven-year treaty agreement with Israel, it will be obvious that he is the one. Anyone who knows Daniel 9, Matthew 24. Maybe he's a politician on the world scene and a leader, but no one really knows. He is one of many world leaders. But when he steps forward and comes and signs that agreement or brokers some kind of peace deal that's a seven-year period of time, then it will be clear he's the one. That's what Paul is saying. So he assures the Thessalonians that they have not entered the day of the Lord's wrath because one, the great apostasy or great gathering has not taken place. And number two, the Antichrist has not been revealed. 
It is after these two things that the day of the Lord's wrath begins. But as Paul taught them back in his first letter, we won't be here. We will not experience the day of the Lord's wrath. Those who will be here will see the Antichrist break his treaty with Israel and demand worship. And Paul refers to this in verses 4 and following. He says, Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And, you, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Antichrist will be the most powerful man to ever live. The most powerful man ever to walk this planet, but he will be consumed simply by the breath of the Lord's mouth and destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Then Paul adds an interesting footnote about this man of sin. He says in verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Oh, what an important verse for our day and age. Some Christians are so non-discerning as to assume that anything that looks miraculous is of God. That kind of gullible attitude is just what the Antichrist will play on to deceive people. In fact, it's interesting to note that these three terms, translated in my version, maybe yours uses different terms, but power, signs, and wonders, minus the word lying, but power, signs, and wonders, those are the exact three terms used to describe the miracles of Jesus and the apostles. As I said, except for the term lying. Satan is a master counterfeiter. And his man, the Antichrist, will counterfeit the miracles of God and deceive many. Verse 10 says, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Beloved, this verse, this verse is at the heart of why people aren't saved. They don't love the truth. They love their sin instead. As, as it says in John 3.19, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Why aren't there more Christians in the world today? It's not because there are things that disprove the Bible, because there is nothing that does. The reason there aren't more Christians is because people don't want the truth. They love darkness rather than light, and that's what Paul says here in verse 10. And so he he continues and adds verse 11, And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's the same thought again. People love sin, people love unrighteousness, and they don't want the truth. So Paul says here, the day is coming when God is finally going to say to this world, okay, you don't want the truth? Then believe the lies of the Antichrist, and you'll be condemned with him. 
That's what is coming. The Antichrist is going to break under the world scene someday, and during his career, God is going to unleash his judgment on this world. We see part of that in our text in Revelation chapter 8. Now let's go back to our text over there at the end of the New Testament, Revelation chapter 8. After the glorious scene of chapter 7, in which John sees multitudes saved out of the great tribulation, the subject of judgment resumes. Chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The he in this verse is obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 7 is somewhat parenthetical. You will remember that chapter 6 records Jesus opening the first six seals, and you've got a parenthesis, a parenthetical thought, chapter 7, and now we just resume the story. So this he is the same he of chapter 6, and it is our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 5, he received a seven-sealed scroll from God the Father. The scroll is the title deed to the earth. The seventh seal referred to here in verse 1 is the seventh seal on that scroll. Chapter 6 tells us about the breaking of the first six seals, but between the sixth and seventh seals, John inserts chapter 7. Chapter 6 is all about judgment on unbelievers during the tribulation, and chapter 7 is about those who will be saved during the tribulation. John wants to make sure that we realize that even in the midst of horrific judgments, God will show mercy. God will extend His grace during the tribulation period, and multitudes will be saved, Jews and Gentiles. That's what chapter 7 is all about. Now John turns back to the subject of judgment. When the Lord Jesus Christ opens the seventh seal of the scroll, there will be stunned silence in heaven for about half an hour. It's quite a contrast to what was going on in heaven up in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Loud and exuberant worship has been going on in heaven, but now there is deathly silence. Why will there be silence? Because when the seventh seal is opened, then all of heaven can see what is in the sealed scroll. And what they see is shocking. The seventh seal isn't the last judgment. The seventh seal contains or reveals more judgments. The seven trumpet judgments. The implication might be that the residents of heaven didn't know that there would be these other judgments. As things unfolded, they knew that the seven seals were all judgments, but maybe they thought the judgments would end when the seventh seal was broken. 
But now, when the seventh seal is broken, they see seven more judgments to come. Or maybe they already knew, but the reality hit them once the seventh seal was opened. And that sends them into stunned silence. After all, the previous judgment, which was the sixth seal, was a catastrophic judgment. Do you remember how it was described at the end of chapter 6, verse 12? I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. It appears from that description that things couldn't get any worse. But they will. The seven trumpet judgments which were seen once that seventh seal was opened The seven trumpet judgments are even more severe than the seven seal judgments. That's why there is stunned silence in heaven. It's almost as if the silence is saying, you mean there are still more judgments to come? Yes, there are more judgments. Or the other way to look at it, is that they knew more judgments would follow, but the reality of the severity will still be shocking when it gets to that point. So there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Think about this. There is another half hour for men and women to repent before the next set of judgments hits the earth. Now back to chapter 8. What did John see when the seventh seal was opened? Chapter 8, verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. All the angels of God are special. But these are especially special, if, if I can be redundant. They are referred to with the definite article, the, the seven Angels. John doesn't merely say, I saw seven angels. He says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Interestingly, that same phrase is used to describe one of the most unique of all the angels, Gabriel. Luke 1.19 says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Gabriel is an angel who stands before God. So these seven angels have a unique position and a unique role. They stand before God, ready to do His will. And John tells us, to them were given seven trumpets. Trumpets are mentioned throughout the Bible for a variety of purposes. In the book of Revelation, however, their main purpose is to signal judgment. So John sees seven angels... With seven trumpets. Verse 3. Then another angel. 
having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. This was a picture that would have been familiar to the Jewish people in John's day. They would have known exactly what he was describing. You see, in the temple complex, there were a couple altars. One was called the brazen altar, and the other was called the altar of incense or the golden altar. Same altar called by two different names. The golden altar stood before the veil of the temple just outside the Holy of Holies. The burning of incense on this altar symbolized the prayers of the people who were outside praying, lifting their prayers to God. That's the picture here. We see this very thing described back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Back up there for just a minute. Back up to the third Gospel account. (coughs) Luke chapter 1, verse 5. We are told there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Of course, these are the eventual parents of John the Baptist. Verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, And they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. What Luke is telling us here is this. Zacharias was chosen. It it was his turn in the rotation. Zacharias was chosen to go inside to burn incense while the people stayed outside the holy place and offered their prayers to God. The burning incense ascending before God was symbolic of all the prayers of the people outside, their prayers ascending up to God. That's the same picture we see in Revelation chapter 8. Now let's go back there to Revelation chapter 8. So verse 4 tells us of Revelation 8, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Let's not run past that verse too quickly, beloved. Do you realize what this is saying? This is a precious affirmation. This is saying that God does hear our prayers. They rise up to him. They ascend to him. He hears our prayers. He does answer our prayers. He doesn't always answer in the time frame we would like and maybe not always in the manner that we would like or think is best, but he does answer. In fact, what follows in this chapter is really a response to the prayers of the saints. Maybe I should pause here for just a second to make sure that everyone understands that the word saints here in this verse and throughout the New Testament. This, this term does not refer to a special class of people. I know I say that repeatedly, but in, in Christianity or Christendom, in religious circles, so many people are familiar with saints, 
And they usually think it's people who are dead and, and that are in a special class. They've achieved some special status. Throughout the New Testament, the word saints is used to describe all true believers in Jesus Christ. We are all saints if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the prayer, the prayer that we, the people of God, have prayed for centuries, Thy kingdom come, is about to begin to be answered. The Lord is preparing another wave of judgment to smite the earth, to destroy Satan's kingdom and man's kingdom. Then the Lord will come to establish his own kingdom, just as we pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Down through the centuries we have prayed that. That's about to begin to be answered. Furthermore, the prayer of the tribulation saints is about to be answered. Their prayer is mentioned back in chapter 6. Do you remember what it was? Chapter 6, verse 9. John says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Basically, the Lord says, be patient. I will answer your prayer. It's coming, but you just need to wait a while. God assured them that he would answer their prayers. And chapter 8 is part of that answer. Go back to chapter 8, verse 5. John says, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. When the angel takes fire from the bronze altar of judgment and throws it to the earth, the severe judgment of God is about to commence. This is picturesque. This is symbolic. He throws it to the earth as a foreshadowing of what is about to happen. That's why there are noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. This isn't the first earthquake of judgment. Back in chapter 6, during the sixth seal judgment, The entire galaxy shook. We read that a moment ago. So this is the second major earthquake of the tribulation period. In addition to the earthquake, there were rumblings, claps of thunder, and lightning bolts. This pictures God's awesome power and majesty. And when we get to verses 7 and following, in the next message of the series, these lightning bolts and claps of thunder are going to issue forth in the judgment of God on the earth. Verse 6 says, So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Try to picture this, beloved. The seven angels arranged themselves in order and raised their trumpets of judgment in readiness to sound. This is a foreboding and ominous sight for planet earth i mean the the sixth seal judgments were horrendous 
No wonder there was stunned silence in heaven when the seventh seal was opened, revealing seven more judgments in the form of the trumpets. This is an ominous sight. The earth has already been hit with six devastating seal judgments, and now seven angels stand prepared to sound forth seven trumpet judgments, which will be even more severe. Now we can understand why there is silence. But the silence only lasts, verse 1 says, about a half an hour. The silence is about to be shattered. What kind of application can we draw from this passage of Scripture? This is futuristic. No, there's not a lot of, maybe you would say, there's not a lot of devotional merit in a passage like this. Something to, you know, feed your heart and feed your soul. What, what, what can we draw from this passage of Scripture? Actually, there's quite a bit here that we can draw for our lives. I'm going to mention just two applications in closing. Application number one. God is holy, righteous, and just. And because He is, He will judge this world someday. He will right the wrongs of this world. He will make things right. So those of us who belong to Him need to take courage and trust Him for His timing. We can be often like the the souls of those who were beheaded, those who were slain under the altar that we just read a moment ago in chapter 6, where we wonder, how long, O Lord, are you going to let things go on on this earth? Especially in our day when we have access to so much news coverage, and we know, we can know everything that happens in every corner of the earth in an instant. And it's overwhelming sometimes. People being slaughtered, children being mistreated, women being raped. It just goes on and on and on, and it's just thrown at us all the time. And there are times when we feel like saying, Lord, how long? How long is this going to go on? This passage reminds us It may go on for a while, but it will not go on indefinitely. The day will come when God will make things right. So we need to take courage, and we need to trust Him for His timing. Application number two. To borrow the words of John the Baptist, words he uttered in the first century, flee from the wrath to come. The wrath of God is coming. I'm not saying this as some sort of emotional manipulation. The wrath of God is coming. It's not emotional, that's factual. Now, there should be some emotion attached to it, but I'm not trying to manipulate anyone. The wrath of God is going to hit this earth someday. Therefore, if you are without Christ, and I don't want to assume that in a crowd this size, everyone here is a committed Christian. So if you are without Christ... You need to flee from the wrath that is to come. You need to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ to receive Him, to receive His grace, and to receive His forgiveness. Lest you find yourself under His fearsome wrath. Do that now as we bow together in closing. Please bow your head with me. Father, you have been pleased to reveal this to us. You didn't have to do this. You didn't have to give us a book in your word like the book of Revelation. 
unfolding as chapter 1 tells us the things which will take place after this or the things that will take place in the future. You didn't have to tell us the future. But you have chosen to do that. You chose to reveal it to John and you instructed him to record it, to write it in a book, and you determined by the work of your spirit to make sure that what was written was recorded accurately under inspiration. And so we have before us an inspired, accurate, authoritative word telling us what is going to happen someday. We don't know when. These things could happen easily in the next few years. Or you may choose to tarry the time, tarry your judgment, wait, and it could be a few decades. But just as surely as we are here, these things will take place. No doubt about it. You have revealed this to tell not only us, but to tell the world what is coming. And so may we take courage and trust you that the day will come when you will right the wrongs of this world. You will make things right. Just as the souls of those who had been slain under the altar were encouraged and told to wait, to be patient, to trust your timing, we must do the same. And Father, for anyone hearing these words, for whatever motivation, why they chose to to listen to this, but if there are those listening who do not know your Son, Jesus Christ, may they take heed to the words of John the Baptist and flee from the wrath to come, to run to the Lord Jesus Christ, to run to his grace, to run to his shelter, to receive his forgiveness so that they experience his grace and not his wrath. We pray these things in the matchless, the exalted, and powerful name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.